Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, this is John J.P. Podlasic of Game Dev Advice. I'm a 30-year veteran of the game development industry and have a podcast where I interview artists, animators, programmers, designers, CEOs, and all different types of people that work in the game development industry. Whether you're an aspiring or an experienced game developer, you'll find useful, thought-provoking, and sometimes funny advice on the podcast. So check it out. This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. Hey, yeah, you. Did you know that Arcast is on Patreon? Go check out patreon.com slash Arcast for ways to help out the show and get some sweet perks in return. It could be something small, such as our $1 tier to show your support. Or join one of our higher tiers to get a shout-out, pick an episode topic, or even be a part of the show as a special guest. Even just sharing our show to your friends goes a long way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash Arcast. Thanks for helping us, and keep it retro. What's up, Argonauts, and welcome to another episode of Arcast Mini. This is Arcast Mini number 37, and I am here with a very special guest, uh, the founder of EA himself, Trip Hawkins. So how's it going there, Trip? It's fabulous. How are you? I'm doing great, doing great. And uh, it's really exciting to have you on here since we did do a 3DO episode not too long ago, so obviously we had to mention you by name. And oh, uh, it's, it's just really exciting to, you know, to have you on here, obviously, to, uh, you know, to fill in some gaps, obviously. So... Um, I figure we'll uh, we'll start from like the very beginning here uh, with uh, you know with like your gaming career anyway, uh, in regards to um, leaving like your lucrative position over at Apple Computer uh, back in 1982. Uh, you were the director of strategy and marketing over there, um, and so you basically left that position or to found EA. So, what made you want to do that to begin with? Ten years before that, I had developed the uh, concept of what I wanted to do with EA, and was always planning on starting it as soon as there really was a market that could support a business like EA. You had to have enough hardware in the home to make games. And I, I honestly went to Apple because I wanted to just help get more hardware in the home while also working for somebody else for a while that seemed to know what they were doing and that I could learn from. And uh, the experience at Apple was kind of astonishing because when I started there, we only had 25 office workers in the entire company. And then there were another 25 employees in a back room that were assembling a couple hundred hobby computers a month. So it was really ground zero at Apple. And I worked with the founders for four years and we grew it to a company with 4,000 employees and a billion dollars in revenue per year. And it was an extraordinary ride. And it was, you know, for me, a tremendous experience, uh, you know, the learning curve for me and just seeing all the situations as your company goes through all these size stages between 50 people and 4,000 and becomes a you know, global brand and you're dealing with iterations of technology, et cetera. But uh, the, the time came and it was time to get on with what I really wanted to do. And so I 
got EA formally started. Cool. Yeah. So like, did that kind of like come about really? Because um, I guess like Apple wasn't like ready at that time, maybe to go full on into gaming or like, was that something you were trying to push for over there as well? Uh, Apple has always had gamers on its platforms, but ironically, Apple's never really cared that much about gamers on its platforms. And I honestly think that's still true today. If they really cared about developers making games, the, uh, the uh, royalty rate on, on uh, the app store would be something more reasonable, like, like 10%. Right. And, yeah. you know, I, I just uh, think that, you know, them thinking it's okay to charge 30% is a continuation of basically 40 years of pretty much indifference towards the game industry and always a preference to focus on a market that has higher margins and more customers and not ever really wanting to get that involved in games. In fact, you know, it's, it's been a successful strategy for Apple to really focus on the platform. They have occasionally done that. They've made acquisitions sometimes related to that, but they're more business-like apps or they're more functional apps. Mm-hmm. And as you, as you notice, they've never acquired a game company and they've just, you know, not been very, uh, cozy with it yeah i mean like the gaming side of it seemed to be kind of like a reluctant side of it really it's like it's almost like the side hustle that they kind of like keep falling themselves into and by the way when when they were getting ready to launch the iphone and launch the app store i was in a lot of conversations with them and they really had no concept of how to support the game industry and they had no awareness of what a big deal it was going to be for them and i think that that uh shock and awe has evolved over the last decade. I think uh, almost every year in the last 10 years, they've been surprised at how big a deal games are. For sure, yeah. I mean, because like, I, I know that Apple did uh, did come out with like, the Apple Pippin at some point. I was actually just looking up the um, date there. Oh, yeah, so, 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 so that was back in 1996, actually. So that was after you left for EA. Yeah, I was there. I know it seems like the Stone Age, but I was there from 1978 to 1982. And EA, EA was founded in 1982, and the EA went public in 1989, and then uh, 3 came along, and it did that in the early 90s. So <laughs> by the time Pippin happened, that was a whole different you know universe. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so like you know, so, since you did start EA um, or help start EA anyway, uh, what would you say was your biggest? Well, challenge? actually, let me just correct. Sorry, but let me just correct you there. Sure. I started EA, and I actually started it. 11 years before I personally founded it. And, and I actually funded the company personally for the first year. So I, I'm, a, I'm a rather unusual founder in terms of kind of how long I planned to start that company and then how personally I crafted it and shaped it. And of course, I was CEO, chairman of the board, you know, that, that went on for 12 years. So uh, the, the, whole, the whole thing was... Uh, really my baby for you know over 20 years i mean it truly was like your vision through and through in that case for sure what would you say was your biggest challenge with uh you know you know like throughout your time leading ea uh, as well as like your biggest achievement over there too uh, yeah they're they're kind of related the uh, original concept of the company i i had already figured out in terms of what i'd learned about business and strategy that to start a new company, it really helps and is perhaps even necessary to have a big idea. I didn't know what big idea I was going to anchor my, my company with. And I thought, you know, I can't really start the company until I really know what that big idea is. 
And it was while I was working with brilliant software designers at Apple, this includes people like Bill Atkinson and Larry Tesler, who recently passed away. Those are the guys that, that had the block, they had, they had the courage and the blockbuster ideas that enabled us to really you know, design and perfect the idea of a, uh, what you see is what you get, you know, WYSIWYG user experience. And just working with those guys, I, I came to realize, wow, these guys are artists. And in fact, they have a lot of the personality quirks of what are known as divas, and they have to be managed. They have to be managed differently than just average, typical people. So you're like kind of the Phil Jackson to like their Kobe and Shaq in a way, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, and I, uh, I realized that was the big idea. It, 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 it clued me into the concept that the computer is becoming a medium, and the people that make the software are going to be artists. And so that was really the idea is is I was the first person to figure out that we could build a company around the idea that we're the best company to work with to make software for the home. If you think of yourself as an artist and you want to work with a publishing partner that has all of the technologies and tools, access to the market and, you know, editorial insight to help you help shape you and develop you as a as an artist and to build you as a brand and to really make make it possible for your ideas to get into the world. There were other innovative strategies in the beginning, including selling directly to retailers. No software company had done that either. They're all basically doing two-step distribution where you sell to a distributor, and then they're the ones that have all the power and the cloud, both with the game suppliers and the retailers, because they became kind of one-stop shopping. Right. And so I kind of broke that rule and everybody thought it was crazy. A, a lot of my leading competitors were predicting we'd be out of business in a year. And it became one of EA's biggest strengths. It, it, it was difficult in the first few years to get it established, but it became a really big strength. And we just had so much shelf space and so much distribution cloud. And that, of course, made it easier for the company to make deals like uh, getting a license with the NFL or uh, you know, just uh, uh, all, all the different things about working with other companies and having them allow us to get involved in their business and help them uh, sell their products. So that was the original thing. But by the end of the 1980s, the the market had shifted really dramatically because of the arrival of Nintendo. And they had a very, very different business model, which has, has, has proven over the last 30 years to not really be very healthy for developers. And the, and that business model is that the platform it's not an open platform like the World Wide Web mm-hmm. or the printed book or uh, even a very low-cost platform like uh, DVDs and CDs and floppy disks and audio cassette tapes. And there have been, there's been quite a legacy of big platforms. I would even include broadcast television as being somewhat this way, where there are often government standards that are just freely available or it's a consortium of companies that get together and agree on a standard and they make it very inexpensive for everybody to use it. Uh, then Nintendo came along and they actually copied something that IBM was doing back in the 1960s. So nobody was really allowed to know how everything worked on the inside. Mm. And if you wanted to actually make something, you had to go do business with the platform owner, get their permission and sign a license agreement. And the license agreements... Uh, always had all kinds of sharp 
teeth that would bite you. <laughs> but you really had no choice. Yeah, just so many hoops to jump through. Yeah, much. and by the way, nobody in America or Europe wanted Nintendo to succeed, and they did anyway. And of course, they succeeded because they didn't have a storage device, and they had a pretty decent 8-bit machine that because they didn't have a have to have a floppy disk or you know some other form of storage that manufacturing cost was lower, mm-hmm. and because of their razor blade model, they were willing to lose a little money in the hardware. So here you had a machine like the you know NES, also known as the Famicom in markets like Japan, and it cost you know basically a hundred dollars at a time when. Home computers like the Apple II cost over a thousand dollars. Well, because um, I know with like Nintendo, they kind of went more of a you know kind of promoting it almost more like a toy as opposed to like a high tech computer kind of thing. Yeah, and and because of the licensing model, you had to pretty much make games that fit their marketing messaging. So, for example, you never saw a lot of educational software for any Nintendo platform because that's not how they marketed it, and because they were charging really high license fees, and if it was a cartridge that had to be manufactured, that was very expensive. And so it wasn't really practical to take risks, trying to explore new markets the way you can. If you look at the World Wide Web, I mean, man, everything's being explored. Right. <laughs> and that's because it's much lower risk. And that's good for humanity when creative people have that kind of latitude. So I was not a fan of what Nintendo was going to do, and I'm still not a fan. And I'm particularly not a fan of companies like Apple deciding to adopt the same model Mm. Uh, it's very problematic, and in case you haven't noticed, there are people like Epic disrupting this model now with the Epic Game Store for Android. And uh, you know, even Steam on the PC is a bit of a disruptor, but Epic has a you know lower royalty rate on the PC games than they do. So, anyway, th- things are changing. I think this is important again if you want to be able to support and enable developers and creativity and innovation in the software. Uh, you- you've got to make it more financially feasible. But of course, uh, Apple's never suffered from having enough developers because they disrupted the supply chain by basically telling all the developers, oh, you don't need a publisher, we've got a store. Right. Because that's kind of misleading. Because once you have millions of apps, you can't just go in the store and stumble into something the way you would at Walmart. Anyway, to get back to your question, <laughs> that was a big digression. Yeah, it was a good rant, though, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so there I am. There I am in the ninth, late 1980s, and we're a solid, growing business. We've been profitable for five years in a row. We're we're the market share leader in uh, computer games, and Nintendo has gotten big enough that I'm thinking, dang, uh, I don't really want to take the risks and pay the costs associated with supporting that platform, but we may have to. And then I heard about one of the Nintendo licensees, a company called Tengen, which was part of Atari. Mm, right. They were going rogue, and I thought, that's interesting. Now, when I examined what they were doing, there were parts of it that made no sense to me, and so I didn't do what they did. What, what it did help spur was my interest in possibly uh, jumping to the 16-bit generation and reverse engineering uh, hardware platforms so I could basically publish games without, without needing a license. And in 1988, Sega introduced the Mega Drive in Japan in, in the fourth quarter, you know, holiday season. And we got our hands on some, cop, some, some of those machines. And we uh, 
basically said, okay, we're, we're going to spend probably a year, and it literally did take a year to figure out how this machine really works. And we're going to do it in a what's called a, a clean room where you can reverse engineer something as long as you very carefully follow all the laws about copyrights and so on. And it was a very heroic process uh, led by some really talented people that you know, did the reverse engineering. But it was overall, it was just a, a really courageous strategy for us to use and nobody else did it. And what Tengen was doing with Nintendo, they made some very poor decisions. So they, uh, they had the courage, but they didn't have the strategy and they didn't have the tactics. And they ended up in a big lawsuit that they lost uh, to Nintendo and it almost destroyed them. Right. I remember that. Yeah. We, we knew that there would be risk of a lawsuit with Sega, but we believed we would win that lawsuit. And of course, uh, when we were ready in 1990 to announce our first games for the Sega Genesis, as it was called in the U.S., you know, we knew, OK, it's going to be on the public once we're at CES in June. We, you know, in fact, we'd actually started taking orders from big retailers back in April. And so around April, I thought, you know, we're just going to get back to Sega about, about what we're doing. And I want to go talk to Sega and see if there's a possibility of you know, making some kind of business arrangement. I, I wasn't just going to fall into line and salute and be like every other licensee because I didn't have to. I had leverage. Right. And I was, I was able to negotiate a really spectacular deal with them where we basically had complete freedom to do what we wanted to do. And we ended up paying them a $2 fee per software unit that we sold, but it was capped at a million units. So basically for a $2 million fee, easily a billion dollars because EA in the next two years went from a company being a publicly traded company worth 60 million to a company worth 2 billion. And I, and I, I, could, I would attribute easily half or more of that to what we did with the Sega. Yeah. Because um, I know that like on Sega's platform, I mean that that's pretty much like where EA really like formed like their name. I feel like as far as like having like the sports titles on there and like everyone kind of saw the Sega Genesis really as being like the sports machine, pretty much. a funny thing about the computers that preceded the Genesis. There were some really great machines like the Commodore Amiga, but it, it just didn't sell that well. It was not well supported. It wasn't owned by a strong enough company with good enough financial depth and marketing ability. But I love the machine. And by the way, that machine used the same processor that was uh, in the Atari arcade machines hmm. and that were, in, that were also in, in the Mac. So it's a processor I was very familiar with, and I loved it. And the Amiga, of course, had extra processors for graphics and sound. It was, it was a machine kind of ahead of its time. And then when the Sega Genesis came along, guess what? It's using the same processor that we're talking about, a cheaper version of the Amiga. And again, without a disk drive, because it's a console with cartridges. But now we can control for the cost of the cartridges because we're going to manufacture our own cartridges, and we don't have a punishing license fee. Mm -hmm. So uh, we could really go to town on it. And the Sega, actually, of course, you could use two joysticks with it. So to, to me, social gaming has always been really important. I mean, one of the very first products ever released by EA, and it, was, it was part of our initial grouping of products that were the first that shipped in May of 1983. It's a game called Mule. 
and it was best played with four players at the same time on an Atari 800, which had four joystick ports. So I was, I was already from the very beginning really excited about doing games that lots of people could get together and play together. Mm. And this is kind of pre, pre-internet. And with the same developers that made Mule, uh, we later made one of the first internet games uh, that you know you worked over a modem with dial-up kind of even before the internet was you know, even before the World Wide web launch we were doing that so we were always interested in the power of social games and of course always interested in the hardware becoming both more powerful in terms of multimedia and so on and allowing bigger and more sophisticated programs and and having them have a lower distribution cost either by going to optical disk media or to the internet. So those ideas were always important. And that pivot and that strategy of jumping on the Sega Genesis was a massive game changer because uh, the uh, price of that machine was under $200. And of course it kept going down in the next few years. And they released it about two years ahead of Nintendo coming out with their 16-bit machines. They they had such of a stranglehold on the 8-bit market, they were milking it. Oh, and, yeah. and stuck with it too long. And we ended up with uh, close to half the game market share on the Sega Genesis. And that's really the only time in console history that a third-party you know, game publisher has done that well on a platform. Of course, we had a special financial deal, which is why we were doubling down and you know, mm. you know, building up a big product line. So yes, that's a platform that sold really high volume and it helped us establish a lot of our brands and that was really awesome. And you talk about the awareness of Electronic Arts as a company, it certainly helped with that. And the, the irony is that prior to us being a big console player with cartridges, which by the way, are more or less impossible for the public to pirate or make copies of, say, whereas like if you wanna rip a, a CD, that's a really easy thing to do at home. But uh, a console cartridge, no, totally, totally different story. Before the Genesis, everything we were doing was on floppy disks and they were really easy to make illegal copies of. And I remembered uh, maybe a couple years earlier than that, we were already a very well-established company and I was on an airplane sitting next to a guy and he he and I started chatting and then he found out that I was in the game business. And he said, uh, what's the name of your company? And I told him and it didn't really, he didn't really recognize the company name. And then he said to me, "Uh, well, what games do you make? And I started rattling off titles. He said, oh, yeah, I've got that. I've got that. Oh, yeah, I've got that. Oh, that's great. It was pretty clear this guy had pirated a ton of EA games, but had never paid attention to what company he was stealing them from. Oh, (laughs) yeah. So, you know, and I wasn't really shocked because I think if you're a media company, you know, what's really important is to have the customers care about the brand. And I, and I mean the game brand, if, uh, unless it's Pixar, there's a pretty good likelihood that you don't know the movie studio that made the movie you just saw. You know, you're reading books and listening to music and you know the artist, but you, know, you don't necessarily know uh, who was the publisher. So I wasn't like shocked about that, but you know, clearly as a, as a transition uh, in terms of how our business exploded with the Sega Genesis and how EA Sports got established, not only Electronic Arts as a name got known, but EA as the shorthand got very well known.
like from there though, uh, you were looking into like making like your own console, uh, which is like where uh, where like the 3DO company came came into place. Um, so, like, my question for you really is that, like, why even make the 3DO company to begin with? Like, why not make the 3DO through EA? Like, have it be the Electronic Arts 3DO? Well, that's how, of course, it got started. It was a Skunk Works project within EA. And it, it just became clear that it would be a really big distraction. You know, the, the, the reason for doing it in the first place was that, you know, I knew that our agreement with Sega was going to play out over the life of the Sega Genesis, but they would be far more thoughtful and careful about, about making it hard. Uh, I think the industry as a whole uh, took note, and companies like Nintendo and Sega, what I had done and been able to get away with on the Genesis, it certainly raised their eyebrows, and they were going to work really hard to make it hard for anybody to ever do it again, and they succeeded. Nobody's ever tried that kind of strategy ever again. And you know we're talking about something that happened over 30 years ago. So I, I, I anticipated that, and I thought about well, you know, these guys are going to get harder to uh, collaborate with. And by the way, this, at this point, there's no Sony PlayStation on the horizon, and I'm even talking to Sony, and they don't have any plans to do anything at that time. And I basically did, I, I did the circuit. I went around the world and I talked to all the guys that made hardware. And I, I wanted to understand, does anybody understand where this needs to go? And is anybody built, working on anything uh, that could be the, the, the next gen leader? And, you know, this is the early 90s. So we're not going to even get to the World Wide Web until 1995 when the first browser came out. On the console side, you're really limited to the Nintendo model. And even companies like Sega and Sony later would copy that model. So I just felt like, wow, you know, we're, we could have a really great run of five years while the Sega Genesis is an important platform. But what do we do after that? So I'm, I'm basically looking for other hardware companies to show me some light at the end of the tunnel. And number one, there was nothing there. But number two, a lot of them were asking me what they should do. And they respected me as an industry leader. And, and I, that's where I realized, you know, these guys really don't know how to make the right kind of hardware. But I know people that do. And I could put a group together to build the right hardware and just make it into a Dolby Labs kind of licensing company. But uh, among the problems with that, basically when you launch a console, unlike Dolby Labs, Dolby Labs was able to add their tech to say an audio cassette of music or a CD of music. And that disc could play on all the equipment, whether it had it or not. Dolby could go to all the, you know, music publishers and say, hey, just put this on there and it hardly costs anything. And, and then as our hardware base builds up, your stuff's going to sound much better and that'll help you help your brand. So it was like a no lose proposition. And then they did the same thing on the hardware side. They could go to the consumer electronics manufacturers of audio equipment and say, hey, just put this in there. It hardly costs you anything. And as and it's and the software is backward compatible. So it doesn't matter whether the artist, you know, put put it on that disc or not, or that tape. Your tape's going to work just fine. It's just that when uh, it's a Dolby tape, it'll sound much better on your equipment and make your brand look good. Right. Okay. So that's what they were able to do, but that doesn't work, unfortunately, with the console market. I, I actually was hoping that I could uh, have 3DO be perceived more accurately as a consumer electronics platform. Because historically, the television, 
the VCR. You know, there's various there's various examples of consumer electronics products that have been introduced at prices of $1,000 or more. Christmas of 1993 and the street price was $599 and it came down to $499 by February. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, that that's that's a reasonable price. There's going to be enough people that recognize this is a next-gen product that, among other things, can uh, play music and and it, it can, you know, do the first generation of digital video. You know, but again, there, there weren't developed markets for these things yet. And basically, in, nobody appreciated the versatility of the platform, the fact that there's educational software, there's... It was really judged purely as a game platform and either the gamer wanted to buy one or they didn't. And the price point was obviously an issue. Then of course the Sony PlayStation shows up and they had the benefit of starting work on their custom chips two years later and having the confidence that, yeah, we're Sony, we're going to make sure we sell a million of these. So if you know you're going to sell a million of something, you don't have to worry too much about the early chip cost because after you've made a million of those chips, the price of that chip is going to come way down yeah it's a guarantee i guess that they had to like lay on so yeah you have to be willing and able financially to eat some loss up front a ram memory was pretty expensive around the time that we launched because the pc market was growing so fast it was hoovering up all of the industry all of the world's ram memory supply and then our design we planned initially to have it be a one megabyte ram and then after a while we realized now we really need two and then in the last six months, all the software developers were begging and pleading and saying, no, it's really got to be three. Here's, what, here's the difference between what we can do with three versus two. And you know, it, was, it was a fateful decision. I think it, it did make it a better machine. And, and obviously, Sony PlayStation also launched with three megabytes of RAM. So we, we had three megabytes of RAM. But it cost uh, the, the actual manufacturing cost at that time was... Uh, $16 or maybe $20. It was, yeah, that's right. It was $20 per megabyte. So if you got three meg instead of one, that's $60 in parts cost. It's $40 more in parts cost than being a one megabyte machine. Wow. Okay. And $60 basically translates into around $200 tacked onto your retail price. When the PlayStation launched in Japan, the price was $500. But then they come to the U.S. the next year, and I was in the room watching the keynote panel where Steve Race, the president of Sony, you know, uh, the Sony computer entertainment business, launching the PlayStation. He got up and he was going to announce the price, and pretty much everyone in the room thought the price was going to be three ninety nine, which was still a lot. But one of the things that had happened around that same time is that. When the PC industry is demanding all this RAM and, and basically taking all the supply, the uh, companies that make RAM thought, wow, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, unserved demand. We can make even bigger profits if we put together some more fabrication facilities and expand the uh, amount of RAM that we can make. And a lot of that supply had come on just before this uh, Sony meeting, this uh, keynote at the January CES in 1995. And the price of RAM, you know, when all the supply came on, so suddenly the price of RAM in like one day, it went from $20 per megabyte to $8. So Sony was able to look at that and go, wow, for, uh, we can have three megabytes for the, what was the cost of one megabyte. Here's the audience thinking, yeah, 399 
And Steve Ray says two ninety nine, and there's like an audible gasp in the room, like people are going, "Oh my god, <laughs> Sony's going to take over." Yeah, that's the game changer right there. And it, and you know, I've got a lump in my throat, and, and I'm thinking, uh, man, <laughs> uh, it, it it was bad, and now it's going to get worse. And Howard Lincoln, the president of Nintendo, he's on the stage also, and he's he said out loud, uh, "I hope your shareholders like that." And as he basically said, you're crazy. <laughs> and your board of directors is going to tell you that you're crazy because even he was certain they were going to sell it for more like 400 or 500 and that that was going to give Nintendo some breathing room. Sure. Yeah. And for what it's worth, just to put this in relative comparison, Electronic Arts, when we went public, we raised $8 million. When 3DO went public, we raised $50 million. Sony, when they launched the PlayStation, they invested $2 billion. Oh, wow. Okay. So the infrastructure was there pretty much right from the beginning for them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, since they had to build those custom ships, uh, they put literally a billion dollars into their new fabrication facilities just to make the chips. And you have to give a lot of credit to Ken Kudaragi, hmm. the genius strategist and technologist at Sony who kind of masterminded the whole thing and managed to convince senior, senior management at Sony that it was worth that kind of investment because I was working with Matsushita, Samsung, Toshiba, plenty of really big Asian manufacturers and none of them could conceive of spending the kind of money that Sony went on to spend. And you just can't tiptoe into these things because your console's not going to make it if you don't sell the first million machines really quickly. You know, in its entire history, 3DS sold about a million machines. But think about it. If you don't sell a million machines in the first year, uh, software developers aren't going to support the platform. It's a bit of a slippery slope from there. Yeah. So, like, you know, when Sony came to the United States, I, th I think if you look at Japan, Sony could go around to developers in Japan and it's kind of clubby and they all, they all support each other and they all collaborate effectively because it's them against the world. So you're, you're gonna get predictable collaboration there between Sony and software developers. And then you come to America and Sony was able to basically say to all the 3DO developers, hey, look, um, you, you already made the game for the 3DO. It'll be pretty inexpensive for you to convert it and port it over to the PlayStation. So suddenly we don't have exclusive titles anymore. And Sony's also telling these developers, look, uh, we're going to spend $2 billion. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that they literally had that number come out of their mouth. That's what I figured out. They, you know, they were able to say a lot of really exciting things to developers to make it sound like they were the going to be the badass new platform company. And yeah. they built a, a hell of a machine. you have done differently with the 3DO? Like what's like one thing that you would have uh, changed? Very simple, I would have not done it. Oh really? Okay. <laughs> so if uh, if I had known that Sony was gonna bring the PlayStation to market, I, I would have, and I would have said, okay, uh, apparently uh, there are gonna be optical disc machines with 3D graphics and, you know, eventually internet. And I think the, that's the other thing that I think uh, EA could have done for growth in the 1990s would have been to commit early and more correctly about growing an internet business 
once the World Wide Web came out and getting in earlier on new platforms like mobile. Because what happened with EA is that uh, they uh, did incredibly well in the Sega Genesis. And by the time people like Sony are coming to EA saying, hey, uh, will you make games for us? Uh, EA was able to say to them, well, you know, we started 3DO and our founder is running 3DO and we're a very large shareholder of 3DO. Mm -hmm. And we've got a really good deal with 3DO because the license fees are really low because, of course, I wasn't going to have high license fees. That was against my religion. And basically, Sony says, well, what do we need to do to get your support? And the answer is, you got to give us a, a, at least as good a deal as 3DO. <laughs> so, so basically, you've got a situation where EA was able to sell its stock in, in 3DO and get about $50 billion in cash, get special deals from Sony become a uh, PlayStation you know, leading game publisher quite, pretty quickly, but they had to throw 3DO into the bus. So 3DO, I guess, like helped EA more than 3DO helped 3DO. Correct. You know, it was, it was a point of leverage to help them become a leader in the Sony PlayStation market. And uh, again, you know, at the time that I started 3DO, I talked to Sony. They even actually, and I believe they seriously considered become becoming part of the consortium of companies supporting the 3DO. But by the time it came to make a decision like that, Kudaragi was already getting the early R&D efforts going and Sony decided to bet on him. That was a good bet and that worked out really well. Mm -hmm. So again, you, you asked me to go back in time. I, if I just had known, if I talked to Ken Kudaragi, say around uh, 1990, 91, uh, I didn't meet him until a bit later. And he told me what he was planning on doing. I would think, okay, yeah, we can do that. And of course, uh, EA would have had to pay more because it wouldn't have had any negotiating leverage, but the Sony PlayStation still would have been a good platform because the uh, CD is so much cheaper to make than a cartridge. Mm -hmm. So you're getting back some margin compared to uh, cartridge costs. That would have allowed even higher license fees than they actually had to pay Sony to be tolerable. And then uh, if, if you'd looked at the uh, World Wide Web a few years later, you know, you would have realized, wow, uh, this is a platform that has no license fees. If EA had, I'd still been there, honestly, uh, or if uh, anybody at EA had really been able to assess the internet correctly, you know, they, they could have built something today that, who knows, it might have been Amazon. So more recently, you have actually like focused on making video game experiences uh, that help children with social and emotional development. Um, in general, what do you believe the gaming industry as a whole uh, could do to be more beneficial in kids' lives? Yeah, I think it's you know it's in a, a state of evolution where everybody's playing games, and this is something that I kind of knew would happen a long time ago when we were still a hobby industry, and the people that play games were kind of perceived as uh, very introverted, nerdy people that don't come back you know, after, until they've spent 50 hours on a game. It, it was, it was uh, not a flattering view of uh, <laughs> gamers. And uh, the, the media and investors, they asked me, you know, where's, where's this going to go? And, and I would say, in 50 years, all the people that don't play video games will be dead. <laughs> okay. And I'm, and I'm telling this to... You know, look, I was in my 20s when I started EA, and I, I knew a lot of our customers were uh, in their 20s, 
or younger. And often I was talking to investors and media that were older that, you know, couldn't imagine that they would ever be a gamer. But I knew the market would grow in. You know, I, I knew that all those 20-year-olds would still be gaming in their 30s, 40s, et cetera. All the teenagers would, and that all the people born would have access to better equipment. And of course, that's exactly how it's uh, played out. So at this point, computers are a central part of human life, and everybody's on the internet. Everybody is basically using games to connect socially, and there's tremendous value in that in terms of the quality of uh, human life. And I, you know, I, I think there's one fundamental part of it that is always going to be true, which is that the human brain grows fastest, and by that I mean it generates uh, neuro, you know, neurogenesis, where you're growing your brain cells and establishing more neurotransmitter connections. It does those things the, the best when you are interacting. Because when you are interacting with your environment, there's a feedback loop where you're making, you're taking action and then you're seeing the feedback from, okay, here's what happens when you do that. And then you're making adjustments. So you're really mentally engaged and that's why your brain is on fire and that's just something I noticed when I was a child about what it was like for me playing a game, like even a board game, as opposed to what it was like sitting in front of a television and just watching passively. And right there, it's beneficial to everybody because their, their, their brain is getting better just from being there. Now, if the only games you played were really offensive and socially inappropriate, then you'd, you'd squander that benefit because you would you would do bad things with it. But even though there are, you know, socially questionable games and, you know, there are aspects of games that offend people, the, the, ma the major thrust of games is you're basically managing resources, you are being a hero, you are thinking through strategies, and in some cases you're actually developing skills that transfer into the real world. Maybe the best example there is that when John Madden and I were first collaborating to make Madden football, he and I shared this desire for it to be a teaching tool. We, we wanted the game to be used by coaches. We wanted kids and players to get better at understanding football and knowing how to play it from uh, Madden football. And that exactly played out. And you can kind of sense and you can kind of see that if I'm a kid at, say, in high school, and I'm trying to play quarterback and I want to learn how to read defenses or if I'm a uh, receiver and I want to understand uh, the, the right way to uh, cut off a route and separate from a defender. These are all fundamental skills in football that you exercise effectively when you're playing the game. And it's, you know, I, I could use flight simulation as maybe an even better analogy because if you're curious about flight, not everybody that's curious about flying an airplane can afford to do it. It's also dangerous. Whereas if, I, if I've got a good flight simulator, I can crash hundreds of millions of dollars in aircraft without anyone getting hurt. Sure, yeah. So there's just the, the, the potential for you know, simulated experience. It's really tremendous. And it's, I think this is going to be an area of industry growth in the next 10, 20 years. And among other ways that you'll see it is the way you know, virtual reality, mixed reality, the way that gets into science and education and industry in addition to what it does uh, with uh, consumers in, in their homes. 
Okay. So with that said, then, I mean, um, you know, like, obviously, you seem to, like, uh, hold, like, a, like a firm belief, I guess, that, like, video games can, like, you know, kind of, like, teach you almost, uh, almost in kind of, like, a one-to-one sort of ratio, in a sense. Um, do you, uh, like, I was kind of curious, like, on what your thoughts are, I guess, like, whenever you have, like, say, like, politicians, for example, uh, go after video games as being, quote-unquote, murder simulators, in a sense, like, where they teach you how to do, do you know, bad things out there or, or antisocial behavior, if you will. Here's what I've... Uh, always believed and that I've seen that the evidence lines up with. Um, If you go back to the period of the world wars in the last century, Mm -hmm. uh, a really senseless number of people died. And then color television showed up and team sports on color television became a really big deal. And you'll notice that warfare and casualties from warfare uh, it has gone way, way down in developed countries that have televi- a lot of a lot of people watching televised sports. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to say that the world is violence-free today. In fact, it's shocking how much violence there is, uh, how many civil wars there are going on. There's every year you have 50 to 100 conflicts around the world in which at least 100 people die. And of course, we have mass shootings on a daily basis in America. So. We have some serious problems around violence, but I I think that if you take away the ways that people can direct their desire to track targets and hit them, which you do in sports, which you do with guns, Mm -hmm. and and if uh, uh, you can take your interest in military into simulations, and there's a lot of serious gun owners that spend a lot of time playing games like PUBG or Call of Duty. It's a, it's a question of how do you channel the testosterone? Because I think history has shown is that it, that's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and there's going to be an excess amount of it uh, sometimes that uh, triggers uh, a world war. And you're, you're better off uh, basically providing places where that energy can be uh, I don't know what's what's the word. Uh, It'd be like an outlet, basically. Or... Yeah, exactly. And and uh, you know, again, uh, th- th- this theory's been around since the beginning of games that they're a horrible thing for people to do. I mean, I think there were probably plenty of uh, mothers that thought Pong was evil, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that, and that they, they wanted their kid to watch uh, uh, situation comedies instead. I mean, but the reality is that there's more brain development going on if I'm watching if I'm playing Pong. But a lot of people just don't understand it. And they also don't appreciate that, well, hey, you know, if my kid plays some action game where they're flying and they get into flight and then they start using a flight simulator and next thing they want to take flight instruction, and next thing you know, they've got a career as an airline pilot. I mean, there's all kinds of constructive things. And in, again, there's just no evidence that is what causes someone to become a violent person that does something bad uh, to somebody in the real world. I think, I think where, you, where you do have a problem is uh, online bullying. There's plenty of that going on. Basically, all of the bad stuff that happens on the internet, it bleeds into games. You know, obviously, players can take appropriate precautions, you know, et cetera. But, you know, uh, there, there are predators, uh, you, know, you know, pretending to be children that aren't. I mean, it, so we have all the same kind of nonsense. But uh, those people that are going to be predators, uh, they're going to be predators whether there's an internet or not and whether or not they can do it in a game or not. Right. It's just another platform for their predator behavior, I guess, in that case. So, yeah. And, and the, what's going to determine how much 
predation they can achieve is going to be the fact that there's only 24 hours in a day. Right. <laughs> That's and, you, know, you know, every, every medium that has ever come along, it's like you talk about the printing press. I'm pretty glad they invented the printing press. All of us have benefited. We still benefit every day from the invention of the printing press. And yet we also know that some horrible, horrible things have been put into words and published mm -hmm. using a printing press. So you know, every medium is going to get used by people, and it, it's going to be there's going to be a full spectrum of the human condition and human behavior. But don't blame the medium. Yeah, you take like the good and the bad, like with it, basically in that case for sure. Yeah, you got to have enough faith in human beings that there's going to be a lot more good than bad. That's true. Yep, yep, and that can be very difficult, especially these days for sure. But uh, you still have to have like that faith anyway, and still, um, you know, especially like if you're if you're a parent anyway, I feel like. Uh, you have to just kind of set the, um, I don't know, that, that grounded, like, I guess, like reality of what's, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And, you know, no matter like what media that they play, um, you know, as long as they have that, uh, that kind of like foundation, I guess, like that, you know, that moral foundation, uh, then they, um, you know, like, I don't see anyone really kind of taking, like, say, like, you know, playing like a Grand Theft Auto, for example, and applying what it is that they're doing in that game to the real life in that case. So I think that if, uh, if you have a form of public violence that's big enough, uh, there are going to be people in that pool that have played Grand Theft Auto because a whole lot of people play Grand Theft Auto and a whole lot of people commit violence. But again, it's the cause and effect. It's the cause and effect that doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah, it's just a correlation between the two for sure. And, and, and getting, uh, back to getting back to parents, I think uh, clearly if, if you've got a child, say, that's certainly, say, under 15, you need, to, you need to be having them do their media out in the open where you're able to observe it and you need to be talking to them about it yep. and making sure that you know what they're doing and you're comfortable with it and you know what their social behavior is. And yeah, if your kid wants to leave the house and they're not telling you where they're going, uh, you, better, you better basically tail them like a detective. Right, <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, and I think kids get to a certain age, I mean, a kid that has had access to a smartphone since age four, and I'm, and I'm talking about, you know, because you, know, well, you, you come out of the womb now and you see your parents constantly on these devices and you're pretty convinced that it's the absolute magic wand of all time mm -hmm. and you want to get your hands on it. And uh, after, after your parents get tired of you, uh, you know, asking for their phone, they'll eventually get you one. And, and you'll, you'll have to start dealing with all these uh, issues and, you know, kids, you know, I think kids probably experience the worst bullying of their lives in, you know, junior high school and high school. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's in that period that, you know, we, we all maybe have some of the worst experiences that we're going to have. And we, we kind of grow through some things. And, of course, now it's happening more with mobile devices and Internet bullying uh, and more, t more types of bullying than just playground bullying. That was all that there was when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, you just you've got to be tuned in. But by the time uh, these kids are getting to be, uh, I think, 16, 17, 18, they're driving cars, uh, you know, they're, they're going to go their own way anyway. You can't stop them from individuating and, and growing up, but they're, you know, way more sophisticated. I mean, I think in today's world, a 16-year-old is way more sophisticated about dealing with the world than I was at that age. You take away the media, that wouldn't be the case. 
Yeah, I mean, you, like, I guess uh, to kind of use like an analogy, I, you know, I guess like the parent can try to be like almost like the GPS for their um, for their kids in the case, and um, you know whether or not they follow that to a T is up to them, and they likely won't. But you know, you have to kind of let them explore. But at the very least, you you do like provide them with that, uh, you know, again that moral foundation, I guess, like to help guide their way. So. Yeah. Um, so at the very last question I have for you here is uh, with everything that you have accomplished and you definitely have, you know, have accomplished a lot here, Trip. Um, what's one thing that you hope that most people will remember you for? The uh, coverage that I've gotten over the years, it's very clear that uh, Madden football comes up a lot. Sure. Yep. On the other hand, uh, it's more important to me that I was I was the pioneer that recognized the power of the computer as a consumer medium and that that resulted in a pretty big pretty successful company in electronic arts and you know it uh it goes on today and i i think of ea as my uh, oldest child <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense yeah i mean certainly with everything they have accomplished i mean um you know like also with like electronic arts it's, it's gonna be like a huge one and um also i feel like too uh you know through electronic arts um kind of like making it be like the norm basically where uh, you have like these huge gaming studio teams basically now like making these games because like before Electronic Arts, uh, most uh, you know most if not all uh, gaming studio teams that I you know that I could recall were like just very very small teams basically just very very small teams, and um, you kind of like introduced I guess like the whole concept of like you know where you have like Assassin's Creed for example. Um, you know, that has like, you know, yeah, like a whole, like thousands of people like that are like working on like one game at, you know, at, at every given year pretty much. And, um, you know, I, like, I feel like that, that, you know, that was also like a way of, um, you know, kind of help the industry grow in that sense too. Yeah. And frankly, uh, throughout the 1980s, when people would ask me about the industry, I would say that I was trying to create a new Hollywood. Mm, okay. So, so that, so that idea, again, it was way ahead of the reality of it, but, you know, right from the beginning, we, we had uh, multiple person teams that we were supporting and we, we realized that, well, Hey, there's no studio. Let's make one. Mm. And, and what that meant to us was making the suite of tools that would enable either an individual or a team of developers to really get the kind of benefits that musicians get when they walk into a studio. And of course, uh, when development teams grew, and they started collaborating and working in the same space. You know, then it, it just it just steadily took on more and more of the physical characteristics of the kinds of studios that uh, Hollywood uses. Yeah, that totally makes sense for sure. And like you know, certainly with where EA, uh, you know, like how EA has grown with you under its helm, um, and you know, certainly with how you know how it's still growing like today, how it's still like a you know major player in the industry. Uh, you know, that, that certainly makes sense. So um, I think there's definitely a lot for you to you know to be proud of. Uh, you know, just from that alone for sure. But uh, certainly with your effect in the industry, you know, entirely. And um, is there like anything that you know that you want to like uh, you know that, that you want to promote here on the show, like you know, or like anywhere that uh, that people can find you online or anything like that? I'll just add a comment about what I'm doing now. Sure. So I'm, I'm not fully retired, not by a long shot. I'm still a very active parent. I've got four kids, including one that's 15. And I uh, have a foundation. And through my foundation, one of the things that I, I try to do, particularly here locally in Santa Barbara, is work with just supporting social entrepreneurs and nonprofit entrepreneurs that are uh, hopefully going to have a positive impact on the world and that aren't just focused on making money. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's a, a charitable, charitable activity of mine is to support that. But the other thing that I do is I 
I'm a mentor and coach for uh, technology CEOs. And I've, I've been doing this now for several years and, and I have, uh, you know, several active uh, clients right now. And I'm uh, very pleased with the fact that uh, two of the companies that I've worked, at, worked with that I, that I started working with when they were uh, very, very small uh, are now uh, what I would call pre-unicorn. I think, I think at least two of these companies, uh, I've really helped them uh, get to a point where uh, they're going to end up being worth a billion dollars or more. So I'm very proud of that. I mean, I, it, it, I, I developed this practice because I wanted to help the next generation. And uh, often I'll, I'll tell them that, yeah, I want to help you uh, avoid making the same mistakes that I did. Mm-hmm. And I, I like to get involved in companies that are very promising, that are uh, beyond the raw startup stage. Because I think in that initial period where you've got to kind of figure out what you're all about, uh, you, uh, you want help, but you can't pay for it. And there are just too many shiny objects out there. Uh, it's a little bit like a shark trying to pick a fish out of a school of fish. I mean, flocking behavior like schools of fish, it's designed to confuse people. Mm. So I don't, I don't, I don't really uh, have the ability to sift through all of those candidates. So I'm, so I'm looking for the ones that are maybe a little bit further along that really strike me as uh, having, you know, real long-term potential. And it's uh, very gratifying now that I've been doing it for a while to have uh, some of these CEOs uh, really become fabulous uh, executives that are in the process of becoming superstars. If you'd like to send us any feedback, opinions, retro games, or topics for us to cover, or anything at all, really, you can email us at ardcast at retrozap.com. And be sure to check out retrozap.com for all sorts of other amazing podcasts. It's your home away from home if you're crazy about Star Wars, Animaniacs, or pop culture in general. There's also us with Arcast, so be sure to find us on iTunes to subscribe, give us five stars, and tell your neighbors. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. So there's absolutely no reason to not follow another retro gaming podcast. Well, thank you again for speaking with me here, Trip, and good luck with everything going forward. Thanks, Ed. This is Adam. This is Mike. And this is David. From Super Best Friends Video Game Sleepover. We make a fortnightly video game podcast. Fortnite means every two weeks. Covering gaming news, game reviews. I give it five out of five tacos. And whatever crazy audience tweets come in. And sometimes celebrities like Arnold even stop by to sing karaoke. Each episode we feature one burning topic, game dev interview, or super guest friend from the world of gaming. Check us out on the HP Video Game Podcast Network or on sbfvgs.com. I don't care about that. Wow. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. 
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.